Hello, my name is Tyler Chisholm, and welcome to a special episode of Collisions YYC Current and Critical, a focus episode where I sit down with local leaders to discuss the topics of the day. Good morning, Mr. Devin Livingston. How are you, Devin? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Is there an old joke, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Is that a joke? Have you heard that before? Am I dating oh, yeah. myself? <laughs> all, of, all the time, but usually it's patients above 50. So. Yeah. Oh, ooh, ouch, ouch. Okay, I can see 50, but I'm not, I'm not at 50, yeah. just in case. Anyway, just, just knowledgeable. Just that, was knowledgeable. My, that was my voice. Yeah. Was it? I think it was like a Bugs Bunny. It was an old Bugs Bunny or Warner Brothers thing. Anyways, sorry about that, man. That was on my mind this morning. As, as I'm thinking about our podcast, I'm like, Dr. Livingston. I'm like, okay, this is like, you're going way back. So well, like, anyways. Once a day, so today's not a clinic. <laughs> So that's great. All right. Touche, man. And only clients above 50. Well, all right. Nice, nice job. I think we're getting this thing off to a good start. Uh, Devin's founder and chief medical officer at Entid. Uh, did I say that correctly? I'm just uh, reading it from e- ENTID. ENTID. Okay. okay thank but you. Soon, thank to, you. soon to be name changed because we're sort of branching uh, far outside of the scope of just ear, nose, throat. So. Okay. Well, maybe let's um, give a little bit. So like Devin, who are you and kind of what's your, your professional background? And then we'll talk about your transition to ENTID and get into the like a conversation I love these days, the conversation around AI, machine learning and technology and how it's affecting different industries. For sure. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, I'm chief medical officer of, of ENTID, which is a company that I founded. Um, I'm a local ear, nose, throat surgeon here in Calgary. Um, did most of my training here. Uh, spent a year down at uh, UCSF in Berkeley in, in California, um, working on some skill sets to, to develop and commercialize uh, a biotechnology. Um, and so when I came back, finished off residency, I, was, I had the opportunity to start this company. And uh, it's sort of been, been growing ever since. And how long, so you're a full-time surgeon, so clearly that, mm-hmm. I would imagine, takes up a good majority of your time. How long have you been uh, practicing? Yeah, so I've been in practice for a year and a couple of months now um, at the South Health Campus. So so fairly fresh into practice, and I've been working on this company the, the whole time. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So did, when you were down in, down, in, down in California, just curious, that program sounds quite unique in terms of like training medical professionals or uh, that direction towards commercializing something in the healthcare practice. And that to me, that seems a little bit interesting, a little bit of an outlier. Is that kind of a one-off or is that a, is, is there more programs like that? Excuse my ignorance. I just don't know. I was just curious. I've just not heard of that kind of specific angle to the medical field before in that way. Yeah, it's, it's fairly new, but it's, it's growing. Um, and I think there are a couple uh, more high profile programs uh, across North America. Um, and so it's called translational medicine, which is that skill set you need to, to, to deploy their mantra, which is from the, from the uh, bench to the bedside. So everything you need to create something um, and actually bring it into practice instead of letting it just stagnate in uh, medical journals, which uh, as any researcher in the medical field will know, it's, it's a big problem. You know, you often will do this great work and you're very excited about a publication, um, but it's very difficult to see the impact of that. And there's this, uh, you know, they often call it the valley of death, not just of funding, but of, of translating that knowledge. Um, and it's two totally different skill sets. So how do you get someone uh, that has a more uh, sort of global view of things? Um, you know, obviously, I'm more towards the clinical side, um, but at least giving you the, the vocabulary and the skills to uh, liaise with people to actually, uh, you know, deploy those ideas and make a difference. It's interesting. I would, you know, from an industry that, you know, the healthcare sector, it feels like it is very accurate. There's a high degree of practicality to it because you're still working and helping real people, but it also feels like there's a huge component of it that is very academic and very, you know, up in the cerebral and not necessarily. So that, that whole chasm of the death of that, well, we did great research, but the ability to get it in. And also, is there any, um, obviously a huge amount of regulation, which needs to be in place from a safety security, you're dealing with people and, and their well-being. But is there also, like, I'm just curious on, like, is there a resistance to that kind of change and bringing in not just necessarily new ideas? Let's talk about new ideas, but then also new technology-based ideas. Is that changing or is, it, is that, I'm just curious, is that an oversimplification of like, yeah, there's maybe a resistance to doing things differently than we've done them before? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's how things have been done traditionally with uh, clinical trials and health Canada regulations. And I mean, with the COVID clinical trials, we're seeing um, you know, the importance of having this to stop those trials and also the public outcry. And, and I think that's been going on for so long, just uh, under the radar, because people aren't, uh, you know, tuned to the news every day to see when we're going to get a vaccine. Um, but those checks and balances are in place for very important reasons. And I, I don't see that changing in a significant way um, in the short term. You're starting to see it with the way uh, knowledge is disseminated and the way research is published, right? There's this push towards open access journals where you're actually, 
you know, paying money and then it's, it's freely available for everyone to see and use instead of embargoed for a year. Um, so I think attitudes are changing with regards to that, but I, I doubt we will have a major shift in the way clinical trials are conducted um, unless we're able to do it in a, uh, an equally safe manner. Um, and that would require a, a pretty fundamental shift in, in the way these trials are really designed and deployed to be difficult to do. Um, so, so I don't think the resistance, the resistance is a good thing, right? It, it right. makes okay. sure we're not injecting bleach in our veins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because somebody happened to get out there and say it was a good idea. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we won't name names, but I think yeah. we know who we're talking about. So, you know, cause for me, as we get into the, 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 the guts of this conversation around technology and its ability to change and create kind of a, like taking an industry from where it was and rapidly move it forward. So many industries are challenged right now with this digital transformation. And when I think of healthcare being no different, it's just another industry that, you know, I think we put sometimes in a bit of a different place because because of that human interaction and the, the need for, for safety, for someone like yourself coming in as a, as, as your nose and throat surgeon, but now also you've got this whole other side of your desk, which is the tech innovator, the person who's going, hey, you know what? There's a better way through technology. And I can only imagine, like, because there's so many people I talk to, like, ah, oh, it's so hard in my organization and people don't want to do it differently. You know, in your in your world, those kind of checks and balances are built in just inherently. They're there for a reason. Uh, just thinking about how the challenges has that been a big factor for you, being the guy who's like, oh wait, I think we can do this better with technology in an industry that maybe is also has a lot of barriers to change by by its by its own structure. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a lot of innovative thinking in in medicine in general, uh, which is helpful when you're trying to make these en masse, you know, attitudinal shifts. Um, it's just a lot of the people that have these great ideas either don't have the skill set uh, to translate them into practice or they, they don't have the interest of the time mainly. Um, you know, you train for 13 years uh, after high school, you know, most people tend to need, need to only do the thing that they work that hard to do. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a big <laughs> that's, ask that's to, fair enough, to, yeah. to do the a full 180 and completely change fields. A lot of people do that. And I'm, I'm sort of straddling both of those worlds right now, which is great. Um, uh, but I think that is very helpful because you already have those people uh, entrenched in the system that, that see that things should change um, and can change for the better. So they're more receptive to, to innovative uh, ideas. So, so part of my work is trying to talk with those people and get them on board. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of that sort of interpersonal dynamic with, with innovation. Um, and the same thing would happen if you conducted a clinical trial, like a traditional clinical trial um, with a quality improvement initiative, changing the way patients flow through the hospital, for example. Um, so all those human factors are the same. Um, I think there's just more uh, you know, boxes you need to tick to actually get it into practice. Yeah, which which for for all the right reasons to your point, like those things, those checks and measures need to be in place, and mm -hmm. the level of deep subject matter because you've got this amazing group of like you've got technology sitting over here, but then there's that deep need for subject matter expertise where uh, I can see where it, for, it positions you very uniquely to straddle that line of someone who's very enthusiastic about what technology is going to do, but also has a deep understanding of like this is how it works now. Let's plug it in in the right place versus technology running around looking to solve a problem. I think it's interesting. Medicine has traditionally been more dogmatic because it's beneficial to, to have it that way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, follow the way you were taught, especially in, in a field like surgery, right? You, you've been taught a specific way and that's how you should execute things. Um, even if it, you know, you think there could be a better way to do it, it's, it's probably a bad idea from a safety perspective, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I think we're battling against that a little bit. Um, you know, for example, I'm still using a, the sort of 80s pager on my belt. Um, we still use fax as the primary mechanism to communicate between physicians' offices. Um, and, you know, I'm at the South Health Campus, one of the newest hospitals, and I don't have an electronic medical record there. It's all paper charts. So, um, you know, these things are still effective. Um, and there are workarounds that we're, we're using with technology to kind of, uh, you know, fix some of those small hangups. But... Um, uh, you know, geez, when are we going to see the pager disappear? That's, that's a great question, let alone artificial intelligence, you know, uh, making a, 
uh, a major impact. So. Yeah, like, look, let's look at this, the, the, the gap between the two things you just said. You just said facts and pager in that sentence. And then yeah. you dropped AI in at the end, just sprinkled, oh, sprinkled exactly. it as, as an idea. They were skipping cell phones, not even and, smartphones. <laughs> yeah, so you think of the paradigm shift it takes to go from, I've done a, some work with some medical clinics and uh, specifically as a high-end physiotherapy clinic in town. And the only way to get in front of the docs to let them know the services they had available, we had to do a facts campaign. My team didn't even, there were some members of my team that didn't even really know what it was. They were early 20s they're like uh, sure like what are the parameters to design for a fat like do we even have one to look at it was actually kind of humorous and back to the dr living thing i do that my parents did have a fax machine i did have one at the office in the early days right. so i do know what and i did use a rotary phone to call my girlfriend when i was 14 but that's a whole oh, let's nice. not let's get, get too close um well hey let's we can go down a huge i think this could we could turn into a whole nother podcast about some of the things that the belief is maybe are making our medical system inefficient, but also maybe making it safe because we're not having people out there just going, I'm going to do mm-hmm. it this way. Cause I, you know, that kind of freewheeling something companies are dealing with a lot today is you can buy so many powerful tools to help your job with a credit card. And the next thing this company has all of this tech stack that they don't even know is being used inside the organization that can't happen in the medical space. Like it just fundamentally Definitely. would cause such a cascading level of issues that I think most organizations deal with on a different level. We kind of want things to be a little bit more regulated to hear you talk about it that way. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, the underlying software architecture of most medical software is very old. I mean, it's, it's 20 years old. Um, and even the stuff that's being deployed, uh, through connect care coming up. I mean, those, that's, those are tried and true systems, right? And, and it does have to be that way to some extent, but it, it makes innovating on those platforms very difficult. So, okay, no kidding. Yeah. So let's talk about what you're doing. So let's give us a mm-hmm. little breakdown of what ENTID is all about. Your, you know, your, your other job, the corner of your desk job for some people, which would be another full-time job. So let's talk a little bit about what, you know, the opportunity that you saw and where you've decided to bring technology in and be that change agent inside your sector, what you do in your profession. Yeah, there were a couple things that led me to, to this idea. Um, you know, one was as a resident fielding these phone calls from across Southern Alberta Um uh, you know, and, and I'm seeing that also as an attending now, um, people having a very difficult time describing, uh, what they're seeing in front of them from a physical examination perspective, right? You know, you're, for example, you're looking at an ear or you're looking at a skin lesion and, and trying to actually describe that. Um, and you might not necessarily have the same nomenclature as a specialist who spent, you know, X number of years only thinking about that one thing. And so that, that creates a lot of difficulties and creates a lot of uh, cost and strain on the healthcare system. So, so that was one side of things thinking, okay, how can we use, um, you know, digital health tools or, or, you know, digital diagnostic tools to improve communication of what's actually going on. Um, and as well, when I was uh, uh, down in California, um, started to learn about machine learning and deep learning and um, thinking, geez, there's an immediate application to my field, which is in ear disease. Um, because you're, you're taking the same type of picture, you know, it's typically around the same size. Um, so the, the image data quality is, it's very homogenous, right? It's, um, and would perform very well with some of these computer vision tools. So, um, you know, uh, compounding that, it's very difficult for primary care physicians to, to make a good diagnosis, especially for ear disease. Um, and, you know, again, I, I look in ears all day. Um, so that's what I'm used to doing. Whereas, they might only look in a couple a couple a day and they don't have that same domain expertise because they have such a, uh, a broad thing, a broad category of things that they need to know about. Um, so I wanted to, to give them that, that tool. Um, and, and that's how ENTID was really uh, uh, thought of. Um, so essentially we're a digital diagnostics company that provides tools to primary care physicians, family doctors. Um, you could foresee this going to, to audiologists, dentists, um, basically anyone that is seeing patients, um, where there's a possibility that based on some visual information, they might be referring that on to someone, um, uh, who is more subspecialized for a consultation. Um, so our, our technology is, is a, you know, it's a smartphone platform and we give that out for free to physicians uh, across Calgary right now. We're hoping to expand within Alberta. Um, and with that, we have a little digital endoscope. An endoscope is something to sort of look in the body somehow. Um, ours, you know, you can look in the ear, look in the nose um, or take pictures of skin lesions um, or other abnormalities. Um, and then at the point of care, actually get an artificial intelligence uh, uh, prediction on what uh, RAI thinks it is, they can put that into clinical context and then use their judgment to, you know, either treat based on, on that information 
or refer on, um, you know, or both, and then sort of uh, liaise with the patient after that to to get them treated as quick as we possibly can. Um, so it's it's part uh, reducing friction in the referral system and part actually empowering them with tools to make a better diagnosis, both with better visualization and with artificial intelligence. So I'm I'm in rural Alberta. I go in to see my general, my GP. He maybe did, like I've maybe been seeing him since I was three years old, and you know I go, "Hey, my ears bugging me." He takes a look, but to your point, he maybe has only looked at one other ear that week because it was flu season. He was looking at other things, or who knows what what the case may be. He pulls out this tool uh, connected to his cell phone, takes an image using that using the specific tool inside my inner ear, and then literally in real time. So I'm just walking it through so the mm-hmm. audience can really understand what we're talking about. Because when you walked me through it, I just walked away immediately like it just made sense to me like how could we not have this <laughs> to get mm-hmm. it to he's got the tricorder slash his cell phone in his pocket plugs in his device and literally in real time because of the ability for this now application to interact with the database like you said this has a really good criteria because you have a pretty consistent data set of images right so you've got something for the algorithm to quote unquote learn from that's correct yeah we, we sort of trained in ai using thousands of different images we've tested it against uh, primary care uh, practitioners um, as well as ENT residents, you know, we've, we tested it against a, a bunch of different people, and it, it performs very well. The ear AI on our last test iteration, and it's since gotten better, was about 30% more accurate uh, globally for all visual ear diagnoses. And we're about to deploy a, a dermatology artificial intelligence that, that also outperformed uh, uh uh, GPs on average. So, um, you know, these tools don't need to be perfect and they're, and they're not. But, you know, I think the combination of your physician with one of these tools is really powerful because it's it's kind of like having an, uh, an experienced colleague right behind you double checking everything you do. Um, and as someone who, who actually actually yeah. has, who only works on ears, like that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as that general practitioner, the breadth of knowledge that they need to be that you like the very highly skilled generalist is, it's kind of staggering if you think about their role and what they're expected to know a little bit of a lot of. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, in medicine, we've been using algorithms for a very long time. You know, we have algorithms to say who should get a CT scan if they're coming in with, you know, stomach pain you think could be appendicitis, for example, or, you know, algorithms to say who gets imaging or other tests uh, to rule out a pulmonary embolus. There's all sorts of algorithms that um, we're always using. Um, And you're always, and and you're always gaining more experience because your data set is constantly growing. (laughs) This this is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the one of the wonderful things about our, our uh, sort of workflow is that every time the, the platform is used, that data is, is de-identified. There's no patient information at all attached to it, but that gets fed into, into our artificial intelligence. Um, and so we can get it better and better. So, you know, when physicians and patients are really participating on using the platform, they're, they're working towards building better tools that will help all burdens, um, which is kind of a neat concept. And if you think about the application you're using it under, like these are not uh, applications that require the patient to say, how do you feel? How is this? How is that? These are purely visual. Like the patient is, 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 is almost just a bystander in the, in the, in the experience versus some other things like, well, how did you feel? And how did you feel yesterday? And I'm just interested just kind of thinking about even AI, how it uses, how it, where it's applicable. You've got mm-hmm. a pretty ability to standardize something that is standalone. Like this is an image uh, from a dermatology perspective. It's like, it's there or it's not how you feel about it or what, experience you're going through isn't necessarily relevant to the diagnosis in that case, just to try to even understand where AI and machine learning, where it makes sense as an application. Yeah, this is true. I mean, I think having objective data inputs, um, you know, that, that's very important. I think those subjective points are, are also very important. There's okay. a lot of diagnoses uh, in medicine and in my field, especially um, where I'm using those subjective data and point, uh, uh, inputs to, to make my decision about, you know, maybe not necessarily the diagnosis per se, but what to do about it. Um, And I think as soon as we're starting to have our AI move purely from a prediction tool, moving more into the, you know, edging on to the judgment about what to do about certain information, which will happen, you know, maybe not in the next decade or two, or maybe it will. um, (laughs) Those, the subjective side of things is going to get more and more important. Well, what you what you're calling out, and certainly what I've been reading a lot lately, and I know it's very easy to get quickly go fear on AI, though it's going to take this <laughs> and it's going to replace that. It's the human AI complement, and you summed it up. And I that's you know, I read a book recently, and it kind of put that prediction versus judgment and understanding the dynamics of those two things and how you know what humans aren't necessarily as good at one, but they're really good at the other, and it's almost exactly the inverse for for the machine. For mm-hmm. the machines, <laughs> that's Terminator talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true, and I mean, 
I think a lot of medical work is heuristics, right? And you, you go in and you're using fast thinking um, and you're putting all that information um, into context uh, in, a, in a quick manner. And I think AI would be very, very good at that. Um, you know, you still need the physician to uh, explain it in terms of for the patient and, and also the, you know, the entire other side of medicine, which is not that sort of cold calculated clinical side, which is the, you know, patient care and actually uh, helping them through their illness experience. Um, so it's one of the things that I, I see as one of the potential benefits of AI is uh, freeing us up a little bit from uh, those prediction tasks, um, which a lot of times are, are really kind of boring, to be honest, and bringing back that, that more human side of medicine. Well, some of the use cases I've read around it is that the, the, the argument is that it will it will in the end leave more time for the physician physician to be more actual patient centric in terms of bedside manner in terms of the almost the, the 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 caring side of medicine versus like you said the hard cold analytical facts which your research you know you threw out the number which is sticking with me thirty percent more accurate but I'm not looking for the machine to give me that that hug I need or that that sense of confidence that right. like, okay, okay, we've got this figured out. There's a solution. I, I can see the, the getting better, which is that that mental, oh, okay, thank you. Now I know what I'm dealing with and I know how we can fix it. That's a huge when you're dealing with any type of medical that's not going to come from a machine in that same way. It's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic of trust plays out. Because, um, you know, a lot of times in medicine, you, you might have unusual uh, you know, sort of symptoms going on, go see a family doctor or a specialist, and you're just looking for some reassurance. And, you know, if you don't trust that person, you don't have very good rapport, then, you know, maybe you don't feel too reassured and you want a second opinion or, or maybe you don't and it's still just lingering in the back of your mind. Um, and if, if it's just an AI telling you that, uh, unless you're a very uh, hardcore tech optimist, I don't think you would really trust it as much. Um, so I yes. think we're going to have to be yeah, careful no, I, I with, hear you. Yeah, uh, how, how we uh, convey this information to patients um, and, and really make sure that it's both people, well, not people, <laughs> the physician <laughs> and the AI, <laughs> not strong AI. This is just a prediction. Both, both, both uh, yeah, both, yeah. not just general AI. That's like the, your robo doctor yeah. shows up in your room. Exactly. We've all watched too many, too many sci-fi movies. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so you, I mean, you wanted them to make that joint decision together right? about the prediction. And then again, as you say, that separation of prediction and judgment, the judgment uh, would ultimately still uh, uh, sort of stay with that physician. Well, at the end of the day, it's, it's it's a tool set, right? And if I look at the tools that were used in an operating room 50 years ago, they probably, there's a certain degree of like, that looks pretty antiquated to, I'm assuming the tools you're using today. If you look at this as a tool, obviously a very, very powerful tool. This is all about augmenting that ability for that human to provide a better level of care to, to the individual ultimately. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's moving from the ear on the chest to the glass on the chest to the stethoscope <laughs> to the electronic stethoscope to the, you know, electronic stethoscope with AI to, to give you some prediction analytics on that. Um, so I think, you know, it is just another tool that's, that's evolving. Um, and it, that's really exciting. So I hope physicians see it uh, in that light as opposed to something that either they uh, don't want to understand and can't understand or something that they feel would somehow undermine their, their job in some way. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think people should be worried about that at all um, in medicine. Maybe in, in radiology. <laughs> you mentioned that. You mentioned yeah, yeah. that last time we chatted. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a certain group over here, but then hopefully, and depending that there's ability for those individuals to elevate into another aspect of their role, which is much Absolutely. more requires that human judgment and that human kind of more conceptual thinking versus the we got the hard facts and here's what the prediction actually is. You know, I, I think for a radiologist, it would end up uh, you know instead of having to review you know 200 chest X-ray to to make sure that the feeding tube is in the right spot, which is a really easy task. You know, let the AI do that. They can, you know, click through, confirm that, and then work on the the more interesting and difficult cases, or you know, some of the interventional radiology work that they do, which is incredible work. So, um, you know, I think it should be exciting for for uh, physicians because it's going to, as you say, free up their time and and allow them to work on uh, more interesting work and and work that uh, more directly impacts patients. 
And if you, hey, there, you can't live in Canada with, you know, we have an amazing healthcare system, but there's always a very quick asterisk around like, well, access to care and time. And mm -hmm. we provide access if you're willing to wait for 12 hours. And if we can free up these individuals that are overtaxed and clearly overworked in these environments to be able to do the higher value tasks, but also potentially, and I don't want to make this sound like a volume game, like, oh, let's push the numbers through. But if mm -hmm. we've got a lineup out in the lobby, if you get back to just being more customer centric, we want it to care for those people and, and provide a service to them as fast as we can. As, with as much without compromising quality, because that's oftentimes speed reduces quality, you know. And if this yeah, can no, if this true. can bridge that gap, you know, like I can do something really quickly, and I look back at it later, I'm like, wow, why did I even bother doing that? Like that, I should have just left it till I had time. And, and, and you know, that's the flip side to the argument that uh, you know, with these tools, we'll have more time, and we can devote that to patient care, and you know, uh, you know, strengthen that sort of uh, patient physician dynamic. Um, a lot of people say, well, you know what, you're going to have five extra minutes in your day because you're not doing, you know, as much charting on one mm -hmm. patient, that five minutes is going to be seeing another patient, it's especially in these privatized systems, um, where you are beholden to the sort of metrics that your uh, administrator wants you to have, like their relative uh, uh, benefit units, RBUs in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. Or if the UCP, you know, follows through in specific ways with their private healthcare mandates, um, it can create a lot of problems. So, yes, yeah, that's that, that's yeah. a whole another that's a whole another podcast episode right yeah. now as well <laughs> yeah, as, exactly. that's, as that's starting to float around, and that's a, yeah, it's an interesting uh, knee jerk reaction when those kind of terms get floated around in, in our Canadian healthcare system. <laughs> yeah, this is true, but but to your point, there are major problems. Like that's a very big asterisk, and especially if you're looking to get something like a hip replacement or you know, some of the quality life surgeries that I do, you're waiting a long time, you know, not just to see me, but then afterwards to get into the OR. So, you know, I would love to have an AI who's listening to my interview with the patient to create, a, you know, a perfect note that I can, I can automatically send back to the family physician. And then, yes, I could see more patients um, uh, and strengthen those, those uh, uh, patient interactions and that dynamic. Um, but we also need to make sure that we're not then, uh, you know, chasing more dollars, first of all, as a physician, or letting our administration say then, Kate, okay, you've got more time, let's get more patients through. Uh, but there is that balance, you know, if we're not able to recruit more surgeons and open up more op operating room time, we kind of need that volume, um, understanding right, that it will detract from some of those other nice parts of the interaction with actually having your doctor, you know, listen to you, <laughs> as opposed to engaging in that fast thinking right away and just, you know, getting you in and out of the door. Yeah, it's, it's it's easy to be idealistic about it, but you know, if you look back how many years ago, technology was supposed to make all of our lives easier and give us a whole bunch more free time. We all know that quite didn't work out that mm -hmm. way. So you've got to be pretty deliberate to not just end up with, oh great, we can we can get even we can maximize even more from your minutes now. Now we're splitting now we're splitting splitting your minutes, splitting your seconds versus going, no, we'll give you an extra couple of minutes with that patient to really give them a good experience. No, because the volume, the numbers mean we need to get another patient in that chair in that time. Mm -hmm. It's like being in a restaurant, how many times can you turn your tables? That's yeah. really that's a terrible way to minimize it, but it's an interesting balance when we think about care and then we think about the business and the realities of servicing people. Like it's, I, I must be, a, I, I don't want to be the one having to make that decision. Like I get it. Yeah. I know, I know it enough to know that's not an easy and you're always going to upset one side or the other. It's hard to draw a perfect balance. No, it's, it's true, but there is, there is a crisis of access to care, to specialist care and even primary care uh, throughout Alberta and, and the country. Um, and so hopefully we can use these tools to, to improve that. And that's, that's part of what I'm trying to do with the NTID where, um, you know, a certain number of those consultations will get, uh, sort of offloaded from the traditional referral pathway through facts. Um, and so those patients can get treated earlier. Um, you can order investigations earlier, avert some of the morbidity from undiagnosed or untreated disease. Um, and then hopefully alleviate some of this, the strain on the system. Uh, from the, the bottlenecks, right? Turn, turning right, off the taps, as it were. Yes. Uh, curious just a little bit about, you know, now the other side of, we've been talking a lot about the realities of technology. You know, is, so is this biotech or health tech, or how would you refer to kind of what you're doing in terms of like a category? Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple different ways we're trying to be disruptive. Um, you know, one is around just even information management, which is how do you communicate uh, as a primary care physician uh, with a specialist? Um, and so that's, you know, there's lots of tools out that, that, that are doing that. Um, you know, we could say we're a medical device company uh, because we're actually providing a physical new device. Mm, a piece of uh, you know, your family doctor can't really easily look in your, look in your nose 
unless they're right up in there with an otoscope, right? Which you've probably seen as well, the, the thing they look in your ears with it in your uh, family doctor's office, which is also hard in COVID times because your your face is right next to their mouth. Yeah, yes, 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 it is. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you know, we're providing them with a, a totally different tool in that sense. Um, and then the AI is its, it's, is its own disruption. So, um, yeah, I guess health tech, um, it's a kind of a broad, broad term. Um, but we're encompassing multiple different, uh, uh, sort of disruptions there. So I think that's probably how I would describe it. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, I was, as you're talking, I'm writing things down. I'm like, mm, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so from that, like talking about that alone, talking about the fact, like, let's put your pure, you're, you're now, you're now a business, you're a busy, you're an inventor, you're a creator, you're a business person, you're, um, a promoter. <laughs> How many, you know, you got a lot of hats, you got your surgeon hat over there right. that you spent a good portion of your life, but you're starting, I'm assuming you're accumulating more other hats as the days go on. How has it been starting hats. this? this <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How's this business been for starting in, like you're in Calgary, has the market been open? to it have you had good access to talent like let's talk about the dynamics of actually building a business like this because you're you're one you're one guy and very quickly yeah. i'm assuming you've got to like man i need money i need funding and i need people those two go together really closely uh you're already in the industry so i'm assuming getting access and being able to dodge so if i'm coming in from the outside with tech and i'm not part of the medical community i'm mm -hmm. and i know people that have tried that that's incredibly challenging but just the access to talent and just the sheer dynamics of building a technology business around ai like how's that been going yeah, so I, I've been very, very lucky uh, to work with some great people, um, and I could not be doing this at all uh, without that team. Um, so I, I kind of knew that from the get-go, that this would not be possible to do uh, without someone that could even be the CEO of the company, which is why as, as founder, I'm, I'm not CEO. You know, I'm, I'm still working in the clinics, uh, liaising with doctors, and, and really leveraging that skill set that I do have and the access to people. Uh, for that and working closely with Health Canada for the regulatory uh, piece. So, so I'm, I'm trying to use the things that uh, with my medical degree give me a, a bit of an edge up and then everything else, um, you know, uh, working with the rest of my team. So, you know, our CTO and we have a recent account manager that, that's been hired um, and a programmer as well. And, and so we're building our team slowly, but, um, you know, I've definitely been really fortunate to have that, that sort of team. Um, I think if it was just me, this would still be a research project, yeah. right? You know, yeah, it, yeah. back uh, to the research, that chasm between yeah. research and practicality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I probably would have paid a third party to build some software and then it would just be me using it in clinic <laughs> yeah. and maybe, maybe some of my, my family dog friends and that's it. You know? Yeah, the, the friends and family influence, mm -hmm. and and from an access to talent and some of those team you've been able to put together are those are they local or are they spread across the country or have you been able to find those those resources here in Calgary? Yeah, they're they're local. So thankfully, we've been able to uh, key into some funding through ICTC and Alberta Innovates, um, okay. which has oh, been right really, really really helpful, um, uh, especially at our at our early stages here. You know, we're starting to get more revenue and and we're starting to get to a point that. Uh, uh, you know, we'll be able to build momentum internally, even without external investment. Um, but, uh, you know, I, there's definitely capital out there for health tech startups. Um, and there's definitely talent out there. Um, you know, I think one of the hardest things to find is uh, a CTO, um, from, from what okay. I understand. And, you know, we, we're fortunate to have one. Um, but finding someone with that uh, sort of, you know, even full stack software development uh, and some of the business expertise and, uh, you know, project management experience um, that we have, you know, that's very mm -hmm. difficult. And so I, so I think, I, I hope we are able to attract that type of talent and retain them uh, in Calgary. And it's going to take government to, to step in to do that. I really, I do think things like this, okay. this podcast is great and trying to, you know, things like rainforest, trying to build that, that ecosystem. Those are all wonderful, but you know, you, you might start to, to lose momentum a little bit with them. Um, and so we, I think we're getting there. I, I think hopefully we're not losing a lot of momentum with, uh, I mean, well, we are a little bit with COVID. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I think that's, yeah. we've lost momentum, but created momentum at the same this time. Is around yeah. Because technology adoption, I've been talking to, you know, investors in the tech space, they're like, they said, arguably outside of all of the clear, like the, the clear trauma that's happened because of COVID, it has mm -hmm. accelerated adoption at a rate that we haven't seen for years. In right. industries, one example was, I was talking to a gentleman that's a tech investor, very successful. And he's like, ah, oh, we had some, you know, tech for the law industry. And he goes, you know what? I knew it was going to work, but it was like a five-year play. He goes, we just did 
five months worth of adoption. Uh, we did five years worth of adoption in five months. Oh, wow. He goes, that, yeah. in, that industry is not quick to change. It's the way we've always done it. You know, thinking about the banking sector, thinking about mm -hmm. the medical sector, the, you know, he said, he goes, I, you know, I thought this thing would be successful in five years. He goes, we've just got to those milestones in five months. And he right. goes, if it wasn't for COVID, that wouldn't have been the case. So I'm mean, hearing little pockets like that, like wherever there's a dark, there's a light, you just got to sometimes right. have to kick the stones over a few. Oh, absolutely. And in medicine, the same thing has happened, right? We've got this yeah. uh, new telehealth boom, um, which yes. also has been facilitated again, sort of that you need government to, to help out with this stuff. Um, they uh, released some uh, fee codes that would facilitate telehealth um, mm. with your doctor. So um, without pairing that with reimbursement, there's no way to do that in the health space. So I'm really happy to see that. And, um, you know, I, these types of uh, rule and remote diagnostic tools will uh, become more and more important um, uh, due to the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. No, there's some interesting, I've, I'm in an executive leadership group with, I don't know if you, do you know Rohit Joshi from Bright Squid? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah so I know Rohit quite well, and uh, he's just been on a roller coaster of highs and lows oh, yeah. with the adoption around, and they've, you know, they were arguably perfectly poised after years of trying to push this secure mail approach. And then all of a sudden COVID happened and overnight they were, they were the shine, they were the pretty girl at the wall <laughs> like, or, or the handsome yeah. guy at that, the event, whatever. Yeah. Uh, sound that gender wise. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting just like over, he was like, oh, geez, it's so hard, so hard to get a job soon. And then all of a sudden COVID happened and things changed. And I know they've had a lot of challenges like of just trying to working with the medical community to do things differently than before. And it's been Definitely. rife with, with challenges. Whereas an outsider, and he's quick to say, you know how much we spend on fax paper and printer? It's the cartridges mm -hmm. in Canada. And you're like, that number like knocks you off your chair. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. So interesting to see some of those things, which, you know, from a digital adoption, it just, just happens to be in the health sector are, are coming. So really optimistic for me to hear about being able to find talent in the city, being able to tap into our ecosystem. And, you know, I'm personally, that's one of my missions of the show is to expose people to the things that are going on in the city that unless you have a reason to know about, it often doesn't get in the headlines. You know, we mm -hmm. hear about downtown vacancy. We hear about, you know, lately there are some, some, some funds that are coming to Alberta specifically to invest in tech and CD came out yesterday. They want to double the tech, tech, tech tech companies in Calgary by 2030. Like that's a nice statement. What does that really mean? Right. So, you know, the role that government plays in all that with, you know, incentivizing the right things, I think is interesting. You touched on government's mm -hmm. role in that. And I think they, I, I'll be blunt. I think they need to do a better job than they've been doing. Right. Without unpacking that and turning that into another podcast. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. I think there's opportunity there. We'll, we'll phrase it that way. Yes. I think there, there's, there's, there's room. I think yeah. I had someone I was talking to, um, uh, Jeff Adamson from Neo Financial and they, he's part of Harvest Builders, which were the guys that did skip the dishes out of Winnipeg. And I said, you know, why did you come out to Calgary? And he kind of said, he goes, I forget if this was on the show or offline. He goes, you know, if you look across Canada about where's the next big thing going to happen, he goes, it's what, it's here. It's in the Western provinces. He goes, we're not sure what it's going to be, but that's why we chose to be here. And unfortunately, that's not a 12 month story. That's a multi-year story, right. but we're dealing with like immediate problems. So we've got, you know, we've got employment, we've got vacancy, we've got all kinds of challenges, which is going to take a while to cycle through. But I think, I think we are moving in the right direction. I hear stories like yours that you were able to get talent, get some basic funding, get some adoption, find your, you know, quote unquote, your first customers. Those are all checkboxes that mm -hmm. can really stop a startup in its tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that's encouraging to other medical innovators as well. I think it's uh, often seen as something that's impossible to do without, you know, millions of dollars. But it, you just need to have the right contacts, you know, right people and a good idea. And you can do a lot with that. Well, and I appreciate solving the problem one bite at a time. Like, mm -hmm. you know, even, even if you just did this, like you said, your example of, well, I didn't have all this, I'd just be using the tool myself. Well, oftentimes, if you go back to the whole entrepreneur journey, that's how it starts. I saw a need and, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's very sexy now to look at these, you know, the startups and the series A and series B and forgetting that there's a lot of this stuff is back of the napkin grassroots ideas that just get some, they, they, they brew around for quite a while before they get to see the light of day. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're slowly developing an ecosystem, which I think is getting those ideas out of the, out of your head and out of your, you know, late nights at your desk and getting it into the eyes of people that can go, Hey, have you thought of this? And you have, you've thought of that. And I know that's incredibly important, but sometimes hard to do when it's your idea. And you kind of, sometimes mm -hmm. I think inv inventors, creators hold it too close. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been able to tap into some of your networks down in the States? Like for you, have you reached out and like, are, are you purposely in, expose yourself to other areas where maybe innovation or change is happening a bit faster than here? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely still have those contacts and a, a few good friends of mine, uh, you know, are building their own, even AI uh, companies in the Bay okay. area. Um, and I think, you know, the, just sort of more casual conversations and check-ins around that. Um, 
I think I really want to focus on and not get distracted <laughs> a little bit and just focus on our beachhead market here um, and then build out uh, from within. Um, so I, I haven't done that yet because, you know, I, I, I really like that lean startup approach of uh, failing fast and, you know, getting to revenue early and then iterating. And I think, you know, and I saw this as well when I was in the Bay Area, you have all these concepts, oftentimes are a, a basic scientist or a sort of non-clinical person with a great idea um, and, you know, a great suit and they're a brilliant speaker and they raise a ton <laughs> of money yeah. uh, and it's a total failure. And, you know, seeing some of those ideas get, get pitched, understanding that this won't work for these specific reasons, I didn't want to fall, fall into that a little bit. Um, you know, but, but also there's the practical side of uh, maintaining my surgical practice and wanting to start out and not lose that skill set. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm here and, and also I, I do feel a little bit of that, uh, you know, uh, sort of pride of wanting to, to build from within as opposed to just pulling shoot and, you know, going to California where the money is a lot easier and there's a lot easier access to uh, some of that human capital we right. talked about. Right. Um, so yeah, thought about it. Maybe. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's fair. But I do, I do appreciate the reasons why even your, 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 your position as the, the creator or the guy with the idea or certainly the, the expert at the table, building a company around you, knowing what your role is and where your strengths are and where you're going to arguably provide potentially the most value is the real practical side of this. And then going out and finding the technology people that can then help execute on your vision. I think sometimes as a founder, that takes a lot of self-awareness to know where you fit in your, in your own little, in your own puzzle of things, in your own kind of recipe. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see if I'm right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm still time, time, tell, yeah. time tells all, my friend. Yeah. Um, is there anything that's been, you know, from an ecosystem perspective in terms of being in Calgary for thinking about, hey, if, if you know, CD was listening or that the province was listening, what things have like, what's been in your way? Like if we could ma wave, the, wave the magic startup wand tomorrow, what would, what would have, what, what could we knock out of the, out of your path that could accelerate things or maybe now or in the future or in the past? Yeah, I mean, some of the the software MVP uh, work definitely. I mean, I think there's an opportunity there for uh, recent graduate students to to do some work. I know Evolve U was sort of that was part of their model. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a, it's still a lots of opportunity there. Uh, a lot of people have great ideas and just need a little bit of uh, software development expertise uh, and help to execute on that idea. Um, the other side of things is is legal. Um, you know, it's very expensive to approach a law firm in Calgary that uh, is used to dealing with a major oil and gas company. And so, you, you know, get them to make your USA, get them to make any other, uh, you know, legal documents that you might need, especially for a medical startup. You know, we have uh, contracts that we uh, uh, stand up with all our physicians that work with us. So those, those are fairly major expenses and it's very committing um, to have to pay those up front with no revenue, uh, especially if you're, you know, self-funded or, you know, have just done a friends and family round. Um, so, you know, I definitely think there's an opportunity there to have some uh, boilerplate uh, legal work um, uh, be done. And I think Alberta Innovates could absolutely facilitate that. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. You're, you're the first person who's brought that up. But if I was thinking of someone who's run, like I've run companies for years and mm -hmm. those legal bills are always painful and they're always mm -hmm. more than you think that, that you think they should be no matter where you're at. But you're right. If these companies, you know, you need that level of expertise, but they're also, you know, big, big works with big. And mm -hmm. that becomes really challenging when you come in as a startup and you're like, Hey, we need this same level of scrutiny and the same level of arguably risk mitigation, but we just don't have the same budget. Mm -hmm. That's right. That makes a lot of sense. But no, I haven't not had anyone bring that up before as, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a thing. That's and in the healthcare space, you you know, the, the other side of that coin is, is the regulatory piece and, um, you know, and, and privacy, right. You know, speaking with Rohit, he's probably talked a little bit about, uh, those difficulties. Um, so, you know, it creates a, yes, I, I've heard at length, we've had, we've had many a glass of wine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So some of it starts to feel like it's just smoke and mirrors, you know, is this actually, uh, keeping people safe with all these regulations and everything else? But, yes. um, you know, to, to some extent it is, and you, you know, it'd be wonderful to see, um, government be able to help with that and engage directly with uh, physician innovators or other innovations in allied health. You know, there's a, a lot of people doing really interesting uh, med tech, health tech innovation who are not physicians. I, th I think actually the majority of people that are doing it are not physicians. And so, you know, directly engaging with those individuals um, and creating an opportunity for them to, to try things out within even AHS. I, th I think there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration there as well. 
That's interesting. And you're like, that feels like, man, if we could just cut through some of that red tape, that's kind of what I heard out loud and clear. Yeah, of that. yeah exactly. And what, like, what's going to keep everybody safe to your point, whether it's the illusion of safety, but arguably that's our goal. Everyone like that's do no harm and that's fundamental, but how do we do that while simultaneously encouraging and promoting innovation so that a year from now, we're not two inches forward from where we are now, we're, we're two feet forward or whatever, mm-hmm. the, whatever, whatever metaphor you want or comparison you want to use. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a risk of moving too fast in medicine, which is, you know, I think why we've heard for so long on the side of deferring to dogma and hierarchy and, and the way things have been done. Um, uh, but yeah, there's definitely a balance there to, to strike. And uh, so I hope people are encouraged by that as an opportunity, as opposed to, you know, another barrier for them to, to make a difference. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk about that, just, I was, I've been attending some virtual conferences just around AI and talking about just the real gap between the need for legislation around data privacy and the mm-hmm. controls, but yet how fast technology is going. So if you think about what healthcare is dealing with, arguably AI and data management is, is that's, that's a global challenge right now. And one of the experts, I think he was out of the, out of the UK, forget his name, but he was advisor to the House of Lords. So I immediately took him as credible when he was talking. <laughs> but he, he you know, alluded to the fact that the public has also arguably lost faith in our governments and our regulatory bodies to keep us secure in that world because technology mm-hmm. is evolving so quickly. But that other model, maybe similar to just the world of, of medical, it's inherently slower because that's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just ended up that way over, over the years. And if you look at AI and the challenges it's, it's creating and the speed it's progressing and the ability to stay in check from a regulatory perspective, I think that's something we're going to see more and more. That's not going to get more in line in the near future. It's certainly, I'm not on the path wrong. Definitely. And it's even more important when it's your healthcare data, right? You know, this is, this is about, you know, if you had a major depressive episode or you had a heart attack um, versus, you know, maybe what cat video you clicked on, right? So it's, it's even more important for us. It to- always starts a cat video. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it's even, I think it's, it's super important for us to, to maintain data sovereignty, uh, for sort of everyone in Alberta, myself as a patient included, right? Um, and and allow us access to that data. So I, I, I hope, uh, you know, government, so long as we're still in a, you know, uh, public healthcare system in the next five years, um, is, is able to say, hey, you know, let's give patients more access and more control over their data um, and, you know, be transparent about how that data is used. Um, and, you know, hopefully... Um, uh, that resonates with people and we use that data for good. We're not trying to sell them things. We're not trying to sell them a new, uh, you know, Fitbits because they have had a heart attack, even if them might make a uh, positive impact. Um, but we're, we're using it safer the way we're using it, which is uh, to create medical diagnostics that improve patient care and improve access to, to quality diagnostics. Because um, data is super powerful, um, as, as you know, and, um, there, there again, there is that balance to be struck between uh, having things totally closed off and the uh, free for all that you might envision uh, with China or even Google. <laughs> Absolutely, so, yeah. there's some interesting. I've been going down the rabbit holes of podcasts listening to called 16 Minutes, and it's you know what's new in tech, what's what what makes it relevant, and kind of what should we know about it. I think it's Andreessen Horowitz out of the Valley puts it out, and they were talking about wearables and like the data and that movement mm-hmm. in health. And I think it was Singapore had like the government had done a deal, I think with Apple and someone else to bring in wearables for like a million of their population to start tracking long term implications of healthcare. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting paradigm when. Okay, you're like we're mining, we're mining your data to help you, but ultimately, whose data is it? Like, it was an interesting Definitely. podcast of yeah. like, I'm like I don't know how I feel. Like, I kind of get excited about that because I want to feel more empowered with my information, but how it's being used. And let's be honest, we're giving up we're giving up that health data every day with our wearables to big tech right now. We're already like, there's already yeah. it's already out of sync. Yeah, <laughs> for, for some, for some. Who's listening? Who's listening? Is my phone listening? Right, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is my phone listening? And I have anything worth listening to, but, uh, that's hopefully, uh, anyway, interesting. Again, I, I see multiple spinoff podcasts we can do here talking about <laughs> like wearables and the amount of tech that's being collected there, mm-hmm. or the amount of data is being that's collected there through that tech. And then arguably, is it being used to sell us things? Is it being used like, to negative right. impact our health premiums, our insurance ability to get insurance? Like it, it's an interesting rabbit hole when you start to peel it back, even like a one layer. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know enough to peel it back too many layers beyond that. Yeah. That's a, that's a terrifying prospect if that information was somehow used against you for healthcare insurance, um, yeah, or, or life insurance, disability insurance, whatever else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
Jeez. <laughs> That'd be very know, beneficial to those companies to have that information. And you see it yeah. now with, uh, you know, we've, I've worked with some clients in the insurance business where they use telematics to, you know, if you, if you drive under these certain parameters, we'll give you a reduction or if you don't drive mm. your car or if you drive within the speed limit. And it was a company that mm. came out of the UK and the UK, they can cancel your insurance anytime. So if it was, it was targeted for a young driver program and it was 16 to 21 and they would monitor your driving. And if you stayed inside a certain set of parameters, you would get money put on a, um, a visa, like a MasterCard visa card every month. Mm -hmm. But if you drove outside of the parameters with speeding, aggressive braking, I think it was braking and speed were the two real ones they could measure because oh. the, because the, for the way the car moves and, um, they could just cancel your license with your insurance within 30 days notice. Jeez. Wow. Where in Canada, they can't because there's regulation. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the con, like anyways, it, it opens up a whole nother oh, yeah. rabbit hole really, really quickly. If you say you're a non-smoker with your blue cross and then it, your AI detects us, uh, one cigarette, you know, are, are you canceled? <laughs> do, do, do you get a big red like do you get a red notice like yeah. have you been have you been red flagged on your app i know like, it's so interesting and you know it's like an episode of black mirror like they're always just one notch away from like is that actually happening now like mm -hmm. they did such a good job on that show sometimes in an extreme way but pulling in that thread of like well if technology just went another mile down the road mm -hmm. this is where it could end up without the right back to regulations and controls in place but mm -hmm. let's not end on a uh, <laughs> on a on a sky Dystopian, black, yeah, black yeah. mirror note here yeah. for sure well it goes from the you know being a non-technical person who's very interested in it, you get into the philosophical side very quickly mm -hmm. of, of, you know, what does this actually mean and what's the impact? And I'm, I'm very pro-technology and what it can do for us. It just eyes wide open the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm the same way. You know, I think if we don't think about it, then that's when you run into major issues. So um, great yes, to have those absolutely. conversations. And I, th and I think it should start from, you know, a bottom-up approach where it's actually integrated directly into technologies as they're built. Um, mm. Yeah, and and thinking about the end user, like how how is this going to have impact, and where where can it go beyond beyond that? It's, yeah, it's a it's it's coming, it's happening now all around us. So I really appreciated kind of you walking through today. We got a little bit, it got a bit more philosophical than maybe I intended, <laughs> but I just like just as you were talking, like my mind just going, oh yeah, what about what about what about? And the, then the, the multiple rabbit holes start start to start to open up. But really, kudos to you for taking the initiative and very early on in your career when you like you've spent a good chunk of your life getting ready to do this thing, you get into it and then simultaneously decide to launch a startup. Like, let's not overlook just <laughs> how much work and effort that is. But you saw a need and you believe that you had the ability to solve it. And that's, you know, that is the entrepreneur paradigm right there. Like, I just can't not do this because it makes the most sense to me. So kudos for you on on that journey. Uh, that journey. Uh, well, yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it's, it, like you say, I, I just could not do it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. What's the uh, what's the best way for people to learn more? They want to reach out to you. They want to get involved. I'm, they're a physician. They want, they want to maybe say, hey, how do I actually get this tool what's the best what's the yeah, best path? yeah definitely so you can visit our website which is just www.entid.ca um again the company name might be changing as we're uh, sort of expanding the scope of, of this so um you know there's also if you're a physician uh ahs email right um so you guys will know what that is if you're in the loop you'll know yeah. what it is absolutely um, if, you, if you don't know it's because you don't know yeah yeah exactly i mean but but realistically you know if you if you google my name or entid um you'll be able to get uh, in contact with us and and absolutely if if you're a physician listening to this um or you know a patient and, and you think your uh, physician would like this tool um let them know and and uh you know we can have our group uh, go out and visit them i'm sort of doing presentations uh hopefully once a week uh oh, to different awesome. different right clinics and everything else so um you know definitely you can learn more that way i'd love to hear from from interested people and and especially if there's you know, uh, programmers or, you know, people that are interested in medical uh, sort of device sales, um, you know, we're hoping to build our team. So if, if uh, there's that uh, side of talent listening to this, uh, definitely reach out as well. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, we'll obviously promote it and get it out there. I think what you guys are doing is really interesting, and I think it has the ability to solve to have a, have a cascading level, like like at this at at the patient level, it can have a huge impact. But if you think about just our the burden of our healthcare system and access to care, I think tools like this are 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 what are going to be part of the solution going forward. Like there's no, there's no question. So kudos to you guys and any support we can give you, just let us know. We're happy to, to happy to tell the world about, uh, I love, sh I love sharing cool stuff and this falls into that category. So thanks for awesome. your time today. Oh, thanks so much. 